This is a Diet of Brussels. Today we've got another interview for you with Nicola McEwen, who is Professor of Territorial Politics at the University of Edinburgh and Co-Director of the Centre on Constitutional Change. We were talking uh, at the end of May uh, in the departure lounge of Belfast City Airport, as one does, as I do, uh, about territorial politics, Scottish uh, politics, and the relationship with Brexit. So, uh, apologies for the uh, occasional uh, background uh, interruptions, but uh, listen to what we have to say. So, um, what's what for you has been the most interesting aspect of Brexit? You know, what's what's the thing that is your in is the thing that sure. is the most enlightening well for me um, the most interesting thing that connects with my research is what I might think of as the domestic process of Brexit so uh, thinking through what Brexit whatever it turns out to be will mean for the United Kingdom internally and the relationships between all of its constituent parts and so a lot of our focus in the last year, I guess, has been um, on the, both the legislative process and the intergovernmental process um, trying to get the UK ready for Brexit. So a lot of that has been around the withdrawal bill legislation. Um, and it's clear at the beginning um, of that process that the UK government seemed to um, want to defer the internal issues for a later stage. So initially that legislation, which was of course about um, converting um, EU law into domestic law, so being, having the UK be ready for, for Brexit um, and ensuring continuity um, on the day that the UK leaves the EU. Um, where that intersected with devolution and the distribution of powers within the UK, um, initially the UK government thought that it could, in a sense, retain authority um, for the whole of the UK until such time that they had the chance to think about what they could safely devolve uh, to, to the other constituent powers. But politically, that was never going to fly. And I think the last year has been a steep learning curve in some ways for um, officials and, and, and perhaps ministers within the UK government too to, to realise that they can't do that. They can't, the, the UK is internally much more complex than that. And clearly we've had a lot of difficulties around that and the management that we've seen pushback from the, the Scottish Parliament on legislation. How much of that is about the novelty of devolution? I, I say that as somebody who lives in, in Surrey, so you know, we haven't got devolution of anything. Uh, you know, is it that Scottish politics has internalised the logics and the necessities of devolution in a way that London hasn't? Or is it that everyone is learning and exploring limits? I think... Um Devolution is not that new. It, no, you know, it's it's been, not. Since 1999, um, 
And I think devolution fundamentally changed politics in Scotland and in Wales in a way that it didn't fundamentally change politics in Westminster and Whitehall. Yeah. Um, and that was um, manageable within the context of EU membership because a lot of the things that were complex um, uh, and interdependent, I guess, between what is um, a matter for the UK government and what have become matters for the devolved, a lot of that was managed by being within the same supranational framework um, where EU regulations, EU law, and the institutions themselves both fostered some cooperation to some extent, but also contained the extent to which they could go in, in yeah. divergent directions. Um, and so it's one of the unintended consequences of Brexit in that it's, it's put a, a sharp focus on uh, these interdependencies, if you like, between uh, what's reserved and what's devolved, and has forced um, thinking on uh, what that might mean uh, going forward. Now, obviously, politically, there's a whole other dimension on top of that with a nationalist government in Scotland and within the context of um, a referendum result, which was a very, very convincing majority for Remain uh, in Scotland. Yeah. And the fact that it was a UK-wide electorate doesn't really cancel that out. So you can have a, an electorate that is formally UK-wide, but that doesn't mean you have a single demos. In other words, if you think of your political community in a different way, and if you think of... Um, the, the if, if you think that the distinctive preferences of the people of Scotland expressed in a referendum or a UK election or whatever um, matter, even if in the arithmetic they don't necessarily matter, then that's problematic. It's problematic to ignore that and to, to, to sweep it, it aside. Is, I think, you know, often from a sort of a London-centric view, you, you might think, well, there's the UK and that's the UK and here we are we're sitting in Belfast City Airport and <laughs> you know here's a part of the country that has always yes. had a distinctive yes. political culture and the, yes. the debates are different and the, the actors are different and clearly you know when you think about it but it has to be thought about I think for a lot of people in London in a way that yes. it doesn't in Scotland you know and again I'm, that's why I'm interested in sort of how formal devolution process since 99 has changed that and yeah. you know certainly you get that impression sometimes in England that Scotland does its own thing we don't need to worry about what happens inside Scotland because it's just Scotland and then we don't think about how that impacts on the UK. Yeah I mean I suppose that the, I mean, there's lots of differences between Scotland and Northern Ireland obviously but, but one of those is that whereas you have a completely different party system set of political parties within Northern Ireland, you don't have that in Scotland. You've got um, the SNP, of course, which has become the dominant party, which is also yeah. new um, and difficult to imagine that happening without devolution. So I think the Scottish Parliament and the, the fact that there was a Scottish government provided an opportunity, a platform for the SNP to exploit and they have done that quite successfully and they are still even you know 
four years after the independence referendum, they're still the dominant political party. So there's that dimension that plays into things as well. The independence issue hasn't gone away. It's still a live issue. Um, there are no immediate plans for uh, another independence referendum, but it's it's not unrealistic to think that that's on the, the, the not too distant horizon. So that also complicates things when the UK government uh, maybe pushed in some ways, pushed by the Welsh government to some extent, to, to try to sort of think about how to govern the UK going forward after Brexit in all its complexity. That's actually quite difficult and made more difficult when one of the governments within the UK doesn't see its territory's future as right. part of it. So, so there's, there's the... I think for me that's one key question that I'd want to ask you is which matters more? Does Brexit shape independence? Does independence shape Brexit? Do the two have... And they've been pushed together clearly since the referendum, what's but it, yeah. you know, what's, is, is there a dominant discourse now? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. <clears throat> Maybe go back a bit. So when the independence, what might call the first independence referendum, when the, the 2014 referendum happened and when the government was elected with that mandate, there wasn't really a reason for it. There was no grievance. They were not mobilising people because of deep dis dissatisfaction with yeah. the way that Britain was governed. In fact, quite the opposite. So the, there was more contentment with the system of devolution of multi-level government than there had been. So it was, you know, independence without a cause, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, whereas now, in one sense, we're in a different situation. So that you, you can see now that, you know, if that's the point of view you take, you might think, well, Scotland is being withdrawn from the EU against its will, against the express will, um, changes the terms of the deal of 2014, so therefore legitimises the return to the question. The problem the Scottish Government faces there is that there is no evidence that that's how the public feel. Yeah. Um, and public opinion hasn't really... Public opinion hasn't shifted yeah. in either direction, no. really. So, um, Scotland is still as divided on the issue of independence as it was uh, four years ago. And I think that was quite clear in the general election uh, last year. Um, so, it's interesting. And I possibly misunderstood in some places the result in Scotland. So you had um, Scotland being the only um, part of the UK where the Conservatives made gains in the election. Um, and there was some relationship with Brexit supporting areas and, and, and increased support for the Conservatives. But I think the far more powerful explanation was that that was in some ways a second order election for Scotland because it was utterly dominated by, not by Brexit, but by the debate over another independence referendum. So just for listeners, when we're saying a second order election, Sorry, it's not... Yes. A, it's because no, well, so I, I talk in jargon. <laughs> <laughs> but basically you're saying that in Scotland, the general election is not about so British the, politics, so it's about Normally it is. So nor normally it is about British politics, and after... Or, or at least partly, 
and in fact that was probably even more the case after devolution was introduced than it had been before because after devolution you had Scottish elections to, to, to yeah. focus those issues and then in some ways in the early years of devolution that made British general elections quite challenging for the SNP, they weren't going to win, you know, and, and so they, in some ways they became more British affairs than had been the case. 2014 referendum changed that. We saw that in the general election that followed where the SNP did spectacularly well. Um, and then in 2017, I think, it, in a... It, in similar but different ways too, it was also dominated by that that fundamental issue of independence versus union which still yeah. dominates Scottish politics. Again, you point to that s stability of public opinion, that division. What do you think would shift that? And given how much we've been through over the last couple, you know, yeah. is it is it the, at the point that we get to a, a final deal or a no deal? We know what Brexit looks like because that's been a, a kind of a line from the SNP, from Nicola Sturgeon, that yeah. maybe at the point that it all gets real, that's the point at which people say, I don't like that. It's very, very difficult to say and I'm very reluctant to try to predict the future. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next I week, never mind, I never mind in a few years. But, um, but I suppose that, the well, Last Friday, um, yeah. there was a, a, a commission that had been set up by the SNP called the, the Sustainable Growth Commission, released a um, substantial 350-odd page document that was about the economics of independence. And it had lots of detail around you know, growth models under independence, and a realistic assessment of, you know, the the, the fiscal gap and how you might overcome the, you know, the gap between money raised and money currently spent and how you might overcome that, what you might do with oil revenues, how to manage a currency going forward. So there was all of that detail in there and yet it said nothing about whether they felt an independent Scotland should be in the EU or not in the EU. What it did say was that it was fundamentally important for an independent Scotland to be in the single market. And I wonder which if we are seeing which is a yes. distinction. Uh, and I so I think what happens what Brexit turns out to mean for the UK as a whole has a fundamental bearing on what would be possible yeah. for an independent Scotland. What the SNP would not want to happen is for the issue of the the Anglo-Scottish border to be seen as a as a, a barrier um, to if that becomes an issue if the border becomes an issue in an independence referendum it's, an, it's a considerably more difficult referendum to win yes um, so I think that's partly there's partly a wait and see um, aspect to that um, and that's why what happens in Ireland is very important not just the north-south border, but the east-west one as well. So Ireland, as an independent member state of the EU, still has a very important relationship with the UK and will presumably continue to have that. So how would that be managed in a Brexit scenario? And that, I think, will, will tell us 
um, something about what may be possible um, or not uh, in the context of independence. And that raises a slightly different set of questions about practicalities and how much does the Scottish government look and have interactions with Ireland on precisely these kind of issues that you know we kind of know that the devolved institutions have yeah. interactions, yeah, but yeah. how much does it that stretch across the Irish Sea to, to Dublin? Very much so. So uh, the Scottish government has a base in Dublin now, uh, so um, not a big one, but you know it's still it is sure to network at, at ministerial level and at official level. There's there's a fair bit of interaction. Um, in addition to the interaction it has with with, um, with the Welsh government and, and the UK government as well, there's been an interesting going back to the issue of the withdrawal bill. There was um, an unprecedented degree of collaboration between the SNP government in Scotland and the Labour government in Wales to try to um, push the UK government to a different position, and and they did that quite successfully. Um, so the, the legislation that we started off talking about uh, it's not yet final but um, at least the devolution aspects of it were changed not sufficiently so for the Scottish Parliament to, to give its consent the Welsh National Assembly gave its consent um, but still that change is, is, it's unlikely that that change would have happened without that degree of collaboration between the governments and the, the informal influence that they were able to exert in that process. Which then leads us on to the interaction between Scottish Government and Westminster uh -huh. and the, the Joint Ministerial Council, yes. uh, which nobody seems to think is doing very much. Well, so there's this body called the Joint Ministerial Committee was set up um, at the beginning of, of, of devolution and did very little when the governments were led by um, the same party. Obviously, Northern Ireland there, but you also had a period sure. of suspension of devolution in Northern Ireland as well. Um, and, but, uh, but it, so it has been used more in the last few years and it's been used a lot um, since uh, the Brexit referendum in a new format that was set up specifically yeah. Um, to allow the, the devolved governments to get a say and within its remit they were supposed to be able to shape and agree the UK government, the UK position there on, yes. on Brexit and of course that never happened so having raised expectations it, it really failed to deliver. And why? I think... Um, as far as we can tell. Good question. Um, I think it's partly because there are different perceptions around the room about the status of the devolved government. So um, the Scottish government in particular, under this administration, would see itself very much as, a, as an equal to the UK government in the areas of its competence. Um, and I don't think that's the view from the other side. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that there is real lack of trust on both sides. 
and here I am talking about Scottish UK sure. relations. Um, and that's quite difficult because it's very difficult to devise any kind of functioning intergovernmental cooperation on an ongoing basis when the two sides don't trust each other enough to share information. They're meant to agree together, but to share information. Um, so I, there are all sorts of obstacles in the way. And yet, this is the UK that we live in. This is the UK in all its complexity. And just because it's hard and difficult, it doesn't mean you can ignore it. Um, and I think that, that the UK government have a job of work to do to, to, to secure consent for um, the system that it has that it oversees, I guess. There's, well, there's a question about how you get past the problems that exist, you know, how do you unblock the legislative hurdles, because clearly there's a need for domestic legislation yeah. to resolve the issue, because I think that's some of the, one of the things we often don't think about is, you know, we talk a lot about the withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU, but there's still everything that's already in the UK system that needs to be yes. regularised or got rid of or yes. something. Um, yes. So that needs to happen. Um, how how do you how do you get past this particular roadblock? I mean, is it one of several roadblocks, or is it? I think it is. Um, so, in one sense, the UK Parliament does not formally require the consent of the devolved parliament. And there's, no, there's no formal veto that they can exercise. This is a convention that has been observed. So they could just continue and on the assumption that it's too important, the timetable necessitates that they proceed, that maybe they, they, a view that they think the Scottish Parliament is being unreasonable, whatever. If they do that, then it, I think, just creates further roadblocks down the road because the withdrawal bill is the first piece of legislation and then there's all the bills to follow yeah. that will have an impact on devolved competence and that would ordinarily require the consent of the Scottish Parliament. So ignoring the withholding of consent um, has consequences. Has consequences for the perceived status of the Scottish Parliament within the UK system. So I think that would be a high-risk strategy. Um, I think going forward, um, the for the UK government, I think they they are concerned um, that the. There is a need, and the Prime Minister has said this often, there is a need to um, ensure that there aren't any barriers in the way to a UK internal market. Yeah. They already have a lot of power to ensure that that wouldn't be the case. So most of the single market powers and competences would fall under the, the remit of the UK government anyway yeah. um, so there's a lot that they can achieve but I think they might also want to recognize that no no government in the UK wants barriers to to trade or mobility even if you look at the SNP 
white paper on independence. That didn't want barriers to trade or nobility, um, even in the context of independence. Now, one person's barrier is not the same as another person's, and there are all sorts of issues that we have to come to the fore there. But I think it's whatever happens, it's not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be something you can fix in legislation. There will have to be a way going forward to devise ways of working together cooperatively where necessary, managing differences and different preferences, which is what devolution was about. Really. And can that emerge organically or does that require a big sit down in a formal or semi-formal setting? And do, you know, do you have to put something down on paper? And you talked already about conventions and practices. How much do can we work on that basis, which is how a lot of how British yeah. politics works, and how much do we need to... I think it needs a bit of both. So I, I think the muddling through that has been the pattern to date isn't sufficient, um, but nor would it be sufficient to have a set of rules and processes on paper if they weren't honoured in practice. Um, so I, I think it does need a bit of both. And that raises all sorts of issues as well um, about what happens when there is a dispute, um, how do you resolve it in ways that will you know, secure broad agreement and consent. And for that you probably need a set of rules. How do you govern England and how is England's voice represented within a set of intergovernmental institutions and processes is another major issue. And I think the UK government and the other governments are alert to those issues. I, I, I do think they are, but knowing the questions is an awful lot easier than knowing the, an the answers. Yes, I, I think that's a... <laughs> but it's a good start. <laughs> but it, it is a good start. And, you know, I think that's one of, the, been the, one of the things around Brexit generally is that often just the questions are not always clear. Uh, just in sort of thinking in bigger pictures as a last question, how... We've sort of seen this pluralisation of the British system, devolution, different voices coming through, different regimes in different parts of the country. How much does Brexit challenge that? Does it do that? I mean, it challenges it, but in a fundamental way or in just a contingent way? I think it is a fundamental way, but it's probably also exposed... Um, challenges that were there under the surface anyway yeah. but it's, it's so you know there, there was I mean there has been quite growing over the number of years before the referendum a sense of dissatisfaction particularly on the part of the devolved governments and parliaments about the way this is working the, the, the cooperation the, the communication between the different uh, governments among the wider policy communities also a bit of dissatisfaction in the way all of this um, operates together but I think Brexit has definitely shone a light on, on those issues to expose some problems maybe, maybe, believe on a positive note also created the opportunity to, to address them but I, I, I do think they need to be addressed Thank you very much You're welcome